1: last week we took a tour of chapter 4 and read it slowly to uncover all these questions that we had. We've discovered that it isn't as straightforward as it may seem, it isn't as obvious, and that it takes some thought to understand what it is trying to tell us. What I'd like to do today is cover chapter 4 verse 1. Through um, sixteen, about half of the chapter. Now, I might want to start with a couple of comments, which are sort of applied to the entire um, chapter, the entire chapter four. First, remember last. Recall last time that when we went through this chapter, we saw that there were these statements made where Adam knows Eve, and Adam knew his wife, and then Cain knew his wife, and Adam knew his wife. And we were wondering why those statements were made. They were not made uh, to indicate every single time that a child was being born, because in the middle of the chapter, uh, you will see, for instance, uh, reading in chapter, in verse um, 17 and following, uh, to, Enoch was, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. There are no... and he knew his wife, and he knew his wife. And so those statements were there for a very specific reason. We're going to get a little bit more into it today. But the fundamental uh, assumption we must make is that the, the chapter in its telegraphic style, as you remember... It's very, very short. Very short statements covering a wide span of time. Uh, Cain is born. Right, a- Cain and Abel are born. Right after that, they're offering sacrifice. Then, um, after the death of Abel, Cain goes away. Then he has a son who has a son who builds a city. Very short, terse statements. The kind you and I would do if we are recalling events... We were all familiar with. That's the only rational explanation we have for the style. In other words, there must have been some other text, some other background story that the Jews were familiar with, that they knew very, very well, and the text here was simply pulling specific pieces of information from it to highlight. Things that were important. Unfortunately, we obviously have lost that text. We don't have it. So we must make do with what we have. However, what we can say is that the point of this text is not to provide us with a history. This is not history. It is actually a statement on the human condition after the fall. There's something that is being said here, but the point of view is not historical. The author is not trying to give us an accurate historical account about what had happened. He's highlighting certain specific things that happened for our purpose, to teach us something. Now, in chapter 3, the chapter previous to this one, Adam and Eve sinned. Their sin was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they were expressly forbidden to do so. In their sin is effectively a violation to the first commandment. You shall not have any other God before me. I am the Lord your God. So anytime we disobey the law of God, we are violating that first commandment. In this chapter, Cain eats from the fruit of the soil. So you have the fruit of the tree that led to the violation of the first commandment. And here you shall see that the fruit of the soil leads to the violation of another commandment. You shall not murder. So obviously the two are interconnected. There's a relationship between them. And here's the fundamental insight for all of us One that we must understand because it has practical implication on our lives today, right now. And that is found in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1 through 17, we see the Ten Commandments. Now I'm not going to read all of them to you, I'm just going to... Quote from that paragraph, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I, the Lord your God, I, I am a jealous God. And here's the key to what we're reading right now. Visiting visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children up to the fourth unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me what does that mean this is this is one of the most solemn texts in scripture where god is giving his people the commandments and this is part of that text what does it mean visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children Onto the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? Let me ask you a second question. Does it have anything to do with you today? At all? Or do you think this text is completely disconnected from your lives? Do you think this text I just read to you may be a key to explain your life and mine? Or... Is it that our lives have absolutely nothing to do with this text? What do you think? Okay. has a lot to do with us. Any other reaction? Let me give you a very practical example. You'll understand maybe a little bit more why I harp so much on this. Let's take contraception. Now, you know, and I've told you that, contraception is a mortal sin. So, a man and a woman get together and get married. Now, they haven't taken time to read the teachings of the church. They're figuring that stuff up. And they just sit down and think about children. And then they decide, you know what, we're not ready yet. We don't have enough money. We don't have any this or that or the other, so we're going to delay. So they contracept. They think nothing of it. They just do it. Later on, when they have kids, and their kids are teenagers, they throw their hands to heaven and say, how do you deal with this? What's wrong? Those kids, I mean, how do you deal with those teenagers? Why? They're rebellious. They don't listen to us. We have no authority. They don't listen to our word. They want to do whatever they want to do. It's my life, my space. You think any relationship there? Having my space? My iPod. My car. My, my, my. You think there's any connection between the behavior... Of these teenagers and the fact that the parents have contraceptive, do you see how this text has a direct implication on our lives today? I'll give you another example. parents have four kids, and this is a real example i 'm giving you um, of a real family devout they said a the rosary those are not people trying to be against the church or change the laws. They're devout people. They have four kids. They've immigrated from some country. They came here. Then the woman finds herself pregnant with the fifth. And the man says, we can't afford him. Go have an abortion. That's what she does. They continue going to church. Continue to say the rosary. The kids grow up. They get married. They're not talking to each other. There's a strife in the family. It's deep. Do you think there's any relationship between that abortion and the way the kids treat each other? That's the tragedy of our time. We think that we are free to do whatever we want and there are no consequences. We think that we live according to our knowledge of good and evil. We can do whatever we want as long as we don't hurt anybody else we're fine. That's not how God set up the rules. He said, there is a covenant. And the covenant is between a strong party and a weak party. It's not between equals. Not the covenant I'm talking to you about. And he said, I am your God, you're my people. Your parents said, on your behalf, they said, yes, yes. When they baptized you. And their words stand on your behalf. So God says, you follow the commandment, you obey my covenant, I will bless you. You don't, I will curse you. Down to the fourth generation. Look around you. Half of the marriages end in divorce. Did you know that? And it doesn't matter which denomination you belong to, by the way. Catholic, Protestant doesn't matter. Hmm? You know where it matters? Where's the only difference, statistically, in the rate of divorce? Those people who practice NFP, natural, natural family planning, no contraception. The rate of divorce? 3%. Across all denominations. Any relationship, you think? This is what's going on here. That's why the author begins immediately by pointing out to what? The family. Adam knew his wife. In chapter 3, in the curse, God said the following. He told Eve, specifically, and this is something that is not, you know, it's not, it's not given its due importance. I will greatly multiply your pain In childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, yet, listen carefully now, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That is part of the curse. That is not how God intends it to be within a family that is faithful to the covenant. Do you understand that? God intends for the man to be the head of the family in the image of Christ. So the man has to die for his family. He's there so that his family might have life, just as Christ dies for the church. And the wife obeys her husband as the church obeys Christ. Provided he's a godly man. Provided he's a godly man. And oh, by the way, those rules I just mentioned to you, these rules of obedience between the husband and the wife, are only specific to the family. They do not extend to the work environment. God never said in the work environment, a man cannot have a woman as a boss. That's a contraption of a man... Of fallen men. Alright? Now, what is this saying? I'm going to tell you what it's saying. It's really ironic in a sense, because it's saying to the woman, in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband. Ironic, isn't it? In other words, even though childbearing provokes pain, her desire will be for her husband, so she gets what out of it? More pain. Why? Because the covenant, the breaking of the covenant, in the breaking of the covenant, what provoked Eve to break the covenant? It was lust. Her eyes saw that that fruit was good, looked really nice, and was good to eat, and she went for it. What is the equivalent temptation for women today? I'm going to tell you what it is. It's called fashion. Women, when it comes to fashion, I'm sorry to say it, turn off rational thinking. It just goes out of the window. Not only that, they exhibit, they exhibit rebellious behavior. I, as a father, has i am blessed with six girls and one boy. In my house, I'm the one who says what goes and what doesn't. Because what a man sees in fashion, a woman cannot see. We look at things very differently. Most women are utterly oblivious to the effect they have on guys. They don't even realize it most of the time. As Jason Everett said, men today live in a world where they are constantly sexually abused, visually, by the way women dress. The tragedy is that for most women, even those who want to be faithful, want to be pious, and who consider their faith important to them, it never occurs to them that the way they dress is an intrinsic statement about who they are, what is really important to them. And I'll tell you this much. Women dress according to the way men want them to dress. And they know it. What sets the guideline for fashion is the way a man looks at women. And that's exactly what this says. And yet your desire shall be for your husband. In a broken relationship, the body takes on supreme importance. And that's all there is left. Here's the rule of thumb about fashion and that's the one I give my girls and oh by the way you boys sitting there you can encourage women to dress modestly when you go and compliment women dressed modestly and when you control your eyes that's the role you play when you show your preference for women dressed modestly you're showing yourselves to be godly men otherwise you're showing yourselves to be pagan only two choices out there and don't think he's not watching he is here's a very simple rule of thumb stand before the mirror this is part of your examination of conscience stand before the mirror and ask yourself a very simple question if mary was standing next to me right now would she be dressed the way i am would she agree with the way i'm dressed it is very interesting to me how we treat Our Lady. Somehow, somehow she's kind of disembodied. As if she has no statement to make about fashion. As if she doesn't understand fashion or she understands pro- proper dress or the dress code. We never pay attention to her this way. We don't think she's intelligent enough to be able to tell us something about how we ought to be dressed. We say a rosary, yeah. That's what you need to ask yourself. And here's the analogy I gave my, my daughters. I told them, if you had $100,000, would you put that $100,000 in a transparent bag and walk around it on the street? And they, and they said, no, I wouldn't. Well, well why not? Well, well because I, I, I don't want everybody to see it. I mean, let me just take it away. Hmm. And aren't you more precious than $100,000? So why are you showing off? And to whom are you showing off? And don't think God is not watching. He is. And don't think your actions have no consequence. They have. How? Your daughters. The way they will dress. It will give you pain. You will be spending nights on your knees because of the way they dress, because of the way they behave. It just gets worse. It's your choice. The covenant rules us all. The covenant is the way God rules history. There is no escaping the covenant. In a sense, we would love it if God could sort of break the covenant and said it's over. Because then we can do whatever we want. But He won't. It's there and always there. And that's what Christ said. This is the new covenant in my blood. That's the covenant you're in. This is what you say when you stand up in church and say, I believe. The church makes you recite that creed Sunday after Sunday for a specific reason. You're standing there and you're bearing witness about your faith. I believe. And you have two choices. You can do like these Jews. When God brought the Ten Commandments, they said to Moses, everything God says, we believe. And then read on and build the golden calf and then they said that's the god who got us out of egypt or you start by taking his word seriously and you examine yourself and you make changes where changes are necessary that's why he starts immediately with adam knew his wife because cain the word cain means property interesting isn't it property why was that name present, it indicates the material relationship that Adam and Eve Eve had. In other words, Adam knew his wife as a consequence of that curse. The relationship is completely broken. Sex becomes a drug. What is sexuality, by the way? Sexuality isn't just good. This is the teaching of the Catholic Church, by the way. Sex isn't just good. Sex is holy. Sex is the prayer of the body. That's what sexuality is all about. So neither are we—we look at it in a a, uh, puritan way. Oh, it's we ignore it. Nor do we trivialize it. It's holy. It is something that when you give the other, you're giving yourself as a gift. Do you want to give yourself as a gift and find yourself in the trash? Is that what you want? Did he die on the cross so you find yourself in the trash? So you boys have work to do. Custody of the eyes. The first look is free because you didn't expect it. The second one will cost you. If you're not making an effort to control your eyes, and I know it's hard. This society we live in it's hard, and it will only get worse. But it is still our responsibility to keep custody of the eyes. Every time you look a second one, a second time, you're whipping him. That's what you're doing. Every time. And you can't do it, I guarantee you, you cannot get custody of the eyes if you're not spending time in prayer. Because the passions are so strong, they take over. And that's what we see here with Cain. You can't do it without prayer. It is not possible. You've got to be on your knees. As we say, to be a real man, you have to be on your knees. So this Genesis, I'm not studying Genesis because, oh, it's interesting. I'm studying it because it has a direct bearing on our life. It's showing us the pattern in which we fall and the way God deals with us. Today, right now. So if you live in families that are broken, If you get home and you can't talk to your parents, or if you've lost respect to your father, you don't even listen to his word, or if you have divorced families, you're going to be on your knees, and you're going to pray to God to heal your family tree. You live a life of grace, and through the grace of Jesus Christ, you can pray that the whole family tree be healed. That whatever these people who are your ancestors did, That all their sins may be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a very powerful prayer that every baptized can do in Christ. Alright, to show you the importance of the covenant, I told you already the number seven is the number of the covenant. Because to make a covenant is to seven oneself in Hebrew. That's literally what it means, to make seven of oneself. In this chapter... We notice a couple of things. Obviously, we've already noticed a sevenfold vengeance, right? That God will enact against anybody who can hurt Cain. Sevenfold doesn't mean specifically seven, it simply means there will be vengeance according to the covenant, according to the laws of the covenant. And we'll get a little bit more into this. But you will also notice that the development of civilization that we've seen. In, in this text, falls under the sign of the covenant. We have seven of them agriculture, sheep herding, urbanism, pastoralism, music, metallurgy, religion. Seven. There's sevenfold vengeance. Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam. His song refers to sevenfold and seventy sevenfold. The number of souls mentioned from Adam to Lamech's off, uh, offsprings is twice seven. The name Abel appears seven times, as do also the word brother and the word name. Think it's coincidence? No. This chapter is screaming at us, pay attention to the covenant, because it rules your life. That's not something you and I can ever escape, nor do we want to, because in it is our salvation. Agriculture was the first occupation of man because God told Adam in the garden, you have to till and guard. Cain, being the firstborn, inherits therefore what his father did. He gets the better portion, the portion of his father. Abel has to do something different. And one thing we'll see consistently in Genesis is the fall of the firstborn the firstborn in Genesis can't carry, doesn't seem to be able to carry the family. When the father dies, the responsibility of taking care of the whole family falls on the firstborn. That's what he's supposed to do. And consistently in the book of Genesis, every firstborn falls flat on his face. With a couple of exceptions. Shem, the firstborn of Noah, and Isaac, the firstborn of Abraham. Why is it that God chose Israel? Do you know that? Why did he chose, What was Israel the chosen people? The answer is very simple. Israel is his firstborn. When we go through the genealogy, you will see that. So Israel was supposed, the role of Israel as the firstborn, was supposed to bring all nations to God. Why? Because all nations are the siblings. Israel was supposed to take care of the siblings. And what is amazing about Scripture is that it's a damning account of the way Israel behaves, written by the people of Israel. Go find any other account among all the other people find such a damning account of their own behavior. You won't find it until modern times. It doesn't exist. Now Adam knew his, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore her brother Abel. Now Abel, so you notice, there is no she conceived and bore Abel. There's only bore Abel. Which led many commentators throughout tradition to think of Cain and Abel as twins. So she had twins. She had Cain and Abel. First one was born, and then Abel followed. Right? That's sort of the uh, traditional understanding of the reason why there is no conceived and bore for Abel, but only bore, right? to indicate that there were actually two. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In traditional understanding of the word to know, to know is not limited to intellectual knowledge. I already pointed that out to you. It encompasses the most intimate relationship as we found in Amos chapter 3 verse 2. You alone have I singled out of all the families of the earth. This business of singling out, this relationship is what knowledge is all about. It isn't as in, I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's more the way a mother might say to her son 20 years later, I know you. She's been there. She gave birth to him. For 20 years, she saw him grow up. She knows him in ways that can't just be expressed intellectually. Or a way a husband may say to his wife, I love you. That's almost equivalent to I know you. Right? So it's a loving knowledge that is, that is supposed to be present there. Right? Interestingly enough, some couples find themselves in a solution where one of them says, well, I don't know him from Adam or Eve. They kind of discover they don't know each other. And love crumbles. Because love is based on truth and on knowledge. Okay? So those of you who are married and those of you who are thinking of being married or those of you who are just being married, here's one advice. Husbands and wives, please make it a habit to spend at least, at least six or seven hours together every week. And I don't mean six or seven hours watching the Chargers. That doesn't count. Or watching a movie. That doesn't count either. I mean face to face. If you're not willing to spend most of your time with your wife, why did you marry her? And if you as a woman is not willing to spend time with your husband, why did you marry him? That has got to be the foundation for a really strong marriage. Now you might ask me, what shall we do with seven hours looking at each other? Well, spend the first seven hours figuring that out. I can't tell you how many couples, after 15 years of marriage, when they're in the middle of the throes of life with kids and worries and jobs and this and that, find themselves in trouble because they don't talk to each other. They don't know each other. Life happened, their marriage didn't. And most of the time, you guys, you're you're the ones at fault because you don't want to talk. Now, you don't want to talk about how you feel. You don't want to talk about your emotions. You want to talk about how stressed you are and sometimes how vulnerable you feel and how afraid you are sometimes of things. You don't want to talk about what really... you. No, no, just give it all to yourself. Bundled up. How are you doing? Fine. How's your day? Okay. That's the extent of the conversation. Thank you very much. See you tomorrow. Good luck. Okay, And then, women, please. Your man is not a woman. Okay? Don't treat him like one. It doesn't work. Believe me, it just doesn't. Talking to a guy is not talking like to your best friend. There are different rules of engagement. You're going to need to understand those. So what I'm trying to tell you, successful relationship is hard work. It doesn't just happen. Okay? It's not an autopilot. Here we go. We'll get there. Yeah, you might get there, but I mean, just you. Everybody has left the plane. In parachutes. Doesn't work that way. So guess what? The couples that can weather the the storm of life and grow in their loves tend to be, surprise, surprise, the couples that go regularly to confession. Why? Because when you go confess your sins before a priest on a regular basis... You have the humility required to show yourself the way you are to your spouse. I'm not saying you confess your sins to your spouse. I'm saying you are much more able to be humble about where you are in life. It kind of goes together. So sometimes people come and talk to me about some issues they have, and that's the question I ask. How often do you go to confession? And they look at me kind of puzzled. Well, yeah, there's a direct correlation between the two. You don't talk to God? How are you going to talk to your husband? I don't think he's more attractive than God. And you're not talking to God. Obviously, you're going to be talking to him and vice versa. See, Christ knew what we needed. And it's all built into our faith. We need to understand it and make use of it. Now, the, the, the tense in Adam knew Eve his wife is the plus Perfect which indicates that that action was already completed. And that is a reason why, for instance, St. Augustine would state that Adam and Eve had a relationship in the garden before the fall. St. John Chrysostom initially thought that they didn't. And I think the, the, the understanding is as follows. Before the fall, the relationship between Adam and Eve was perfect. They saw each other as a gift, and they enjoyed each other as a gift trying to please each other, not take advantage of each other. Adam didn't look at Eva's body parts. Right? There was a complete respect of the other and their love was truly a prayer. After the fall, this whole changed. So be, we, without the, the grace of God, our home cannot be Eden. Right? Our home is the wilderness. It's only the grace of God that can restore the marital bed to what it's supposed to be. An altar of offering to the Lord. That's what it's supposed to be. And we'll see that particularly with Jacob when we get to one specific incident. Now, Eve says, interestingly, I have gained. Right? I have gotten or I have gained a man with the help of the Lord. There is a play in word here, gotten and gained, are very close to the word Cain in Hebrew. And they, as I stated earlier, they really talk about property. So, what happens is that a relationship based on grace treats the other as a person. A relationship based on sin treats the other as a property. Someone to take advantage of. And fashion makes, focuses on turning girls into body parts, so that guys can look at them as property. That's the reality of it. That's what happens today. Go check all those magazines plastered with all those girls on them. And then we look at them and we have no clue what their names are, how they feel, what their pains are, what their aspirations are, what their hopes are. All we see is body parts. Complete anonymity. Don't want to know your name. Don't know where you're coming. I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Okay? All I want is Act. And then I'm out. When she said, I have gotten, she does indicate, with the help of God, she indicates that men and women are co-creator. They're not creator. They create with God. They cannot do it without God's help. So God is engaged in that relationship. A relationship between a man and a woman is like a triangle. The man and a woman are at the base of the triangle, and God is at the top. And the only way that a man and a woman can get close to each other without crumbling the triangle, without destroying it, is to climb up on both sides. Meaning what? The only way to get closer to God in your marital relationship is to get closer to God. How many of you who are not married and who are called to be married, how many of you are now now praying for your future husband, whom you don't know? How many of you are spending time in prayer asking God to protect your future husband, your future wife so that when you meet, it would be really a celebration? That's an act of love. Those of you who are parents, how many of you are praying for your children's husbands or wives? Now, even though you don't know them. That is a relationship with God. This is how you live your faith. This is how your faith is completely active and it's imbued and mixed with all the events of your life. It isn't something you set aside for Sunday. You know what I call the car wash Catholics, right? Saturday we go, we wash the car, Sunday we come to Mass, we just do the whole thing and come back and we're done. Only wash your car once a week. If that, you go to Mass once a week and that's it, right? You forget about both. That's not what we're called to be. God doesn't work this way. There is something absolutely incredible that happens here because Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. She actually pronounces that name, that holy name, which the high priest could not pronounce other than on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year when he was in the Holy of Holies. Other than that, no one was allowed to pronounce it. And yet here she is pronouncing it. That is a foreshadowing of Our Lady. Right? Who alone could pronounce the name of Our Lord in ways none of us can, because He is his, her Son. When she says Jesus, and when we say Jesus, it's a completely different thing. Right? You can see the position of Eve. No one else, no one else in the Old Testament gets to pronounce that name the way she does. The more you study scripture, the more you see God has a predilection for women. He does. So, the key here is that Cain was born, and Abel, both of them were born under the shadow of that breakup in the relationship between Adam and Eve, and you see how this carries forward. Just carries forward all the way through. So, Abel means Hevel in Hebrew, which is breath or nothingness. So the thought is that perhaps that name was given to him after he had died, because he really didn't live much uh, since he was killed by his brother. It also means in Syriac, Habla, or herdsman. So there's also a relationship to what he did. St. Augustine points out that Cain represents the first city the earthly city, whereas Abel represents the heavenly city, the city of God. And therefore in Abel, there is this image of all the faithful who will be persecuted for their love of God. Okay, So this is, for instance, an example of that anagogical reading I told you about last time, where we see in the literal sense the foreshadowing of the church and of the end times. Now Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. Oh, before we get there... I'm sorry, we should probably uh, stop and talk about um, what they did. Because in the course of time, yeah, we have to talk about that. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of their fat portions. Here's a really interesting thing that happens here. They bring an offering to the Lord, but there is no prayer, if you notice. There's just an offering. They make an offering, but there is no prayer. In all ancient culture, prayer and offering were always combined, together. There is no prayer without an offering, without a sacrifice. Why? Because it was magical. Most ancient civilization relied on magic. What is the difference between magic and faith? Here it is. Magic seeks to control the deity with the offering. Seeks to coerce the deity to do the man's will. Faith implores the deity and has no control over it. Magic seeks to coerce the deity to do one's will. I'm making the sacrifice, I'm doing this incantation. Once I'm done with this, you will be forced to obey me. And you will do what I want. Magic. Faith implores the deity where a man knows he has no control over the deity. I cannot control God. I cannot force God to do what I want. Right? That's the fundamental difference between the two. The ritual looks very much alike. Very similar. But the fundamental inclination is completely different. One magic is a lie. Because as soon as we get into magic, all we're doing is actually calling upon us demons. You do understand that none of us can talk to the dead. There's no talking to the dead business, okay? When we think we're talking to the dead, we're talking to demons. Who are pretending to be whoever we are. So, I got some news for you. If you are in the habit of reading your uh, uh, horoscope, please stop. That's sinful. It's magic. Okay? Drop it out. Something a little bit more insidious. If you're in the habit, if you're from the Middle East, we have this wonderful habit, we have so many wonderful habits, it's unbelievable, of uh, reading whatever in the cup of the whatever, you know, in the coffee, please stop that's sinful there is no this is divination here we go again we're trying to control the future we're trying to make sure we have control over the future palm reading please stop all of that falls in the realm of magic because it's all about control okay it's a form of idolatry it's a form of idolatry it has, it has been injected into Christian living from sources which are not Christian because we are not careful. We don't protect ourselves as we ought. Stop. If you're doing it, stop. Go to confession. Confess it. Don't do it again. If um, you like Harry Potter, be very careful with that book. It has a fundamental flaw in it, which is that Magic is good, and magic puts you in control, and magic shows all your inner power. It's pathetic. How many of you have seen uh, The Exorcist, or heard of the movie? Okay. How many of you have seen it? Okay. How many of you know that that's actually based on a true story? Yeah. It wasn't a girl, it was actually a boy. It happened in the state of New York. Do you know why he got himself in trouble? How many demons were in him, by the way? Why? What did he do? He played with the Ouija board. Which you can find in Toys R Us today. That's all he did. He wasn't trying to do something extraordinary. He just played with the Ouija board. Now, did you know that in the real story, the priests were not able to complete the exorcism? Did you know that St. Michael the Archangel had to come down and finish it for them? Because the Jesuits did not believe in the devil and were trying to do an exorcism. Good luck. (laughs) Well, I can tell you by the time this was done, the whole story changed. Here's a really interesting fact that is noted in the book. While this thing was going, the kid was in the hospital. Well, after a while, the priest noticed that every time somebody walked in the room who went, went to confession and was in the state of grace the boy's body would go into convulsion. He would shake. But when somebody walked in that didn't do that, nothing would happen. So, as a byproduct, they would kind of ask, hmm, you sure you don't want to go to confession? So, yeah, there is such things as magic, but it's not what we think it is. It's nothing more than us being tricked by demonic forces would want nothing but our utter destruction. That's all they want. Okay, why did I get on the subject of magic? Oh yeah, right, that's what I was trying to say to you. So, here, there is an offering that is made, and there's no prayer. Later on, that's that's a true revolution in the ancient thinking. In Israel, you had the emergence of a prayer that had no sacrifice attached to it. You know which prayer I'm referring to? The Psalms. The Psalms, the Psalms were ascribed to David, but there were prayers that would not be attached to. You didn't have to offer sacrifice when you prayed the Psalms. If you think about the Psalms, they're very similar to an incantation, but there's no sacrifice. So Moses was the one who brought the whole sacrificial system in place. David brought the interior life, the life of prayer. And there is no wonder why we, there's no surprise where we look at Jesus as being the new Moses and the new David. Because he's the one who merges both into his own person. And that's the Holy Eucharist is the highest form of prayer. Okay? So that's really interesting to notice here that they are making an offering, but there is no prayer associated with it. And God is not upset with Cain because of the size or the color or the shape of the fruits and vegetables he brought or whether they were organic or not. His main concern is the intention. It's what's in your heart. What's in your heart. So sometimes you may come to Mass and Mass looks like a boxing ring. You're trying to follow and you're just dazing away and then these starts hitting your head and what am I going to do tomorrow? And then you try to concentrate again and then boom, it happens again you're out of here in your mind, you're somewhere else and then you bring yourself back and the whole Mass can go like this and you wonder at the end, what did I do? I mean, I couldn't concentrate. you You know what you did? You had a beautiful Mass. That was a beautiful Mass. Because you came and by your intention showed the purity of your heart even though your passions and your will may not be sufficiently trained to, to be where they need to be. And God is very pleased with you. So please, even if you think Mass is boring, and I'll tell you right now, if somebody tells you, let's go to Mass, or somebody tells you, let's pray the rosary, they'll be right away, as soon as you hear these words, there's going to be 50,000 pounds of bricks that are going to come on your soul and sit there. You know why? Because as soon as somebody says, let's pray the rosary, he just declared nuclear war on all of hell. How do you think they're going to react As soon as these words came out of somebody's mouth, let's pray the rosary, it's total annihilation. It's war to the death. That's the rosary. So what do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to feel elated? It's only for those who've been progressing in their spiritual life that have gone through, who have had multiple, their fortress is really in place. The seven gates are protected, to use the image of St. Teresa of Avila, as she speaks of the soul. But for those who are beginners, you bet, he's going to whack you on the head with everything he's got. Know your enemy. Understand the rules of the game. Understand the engagement. Know what you're getting into. It's not just you feeling like that. If I told you next Sunday there's going to be here a pile of $10 million, right here, and it's first come, first serve, how are you going to feel about that? You think you're going to show up late? Would you? Okay. Or if I told you that, uh, I don't know, uh, the Pope is going to be here, would you show up in your jeans? Would you? And is there someone here that's greater than the Pope and greater than twenty million? So, They make their offering and God has regards to Abel but not to Cain. Cain's countenance fell. St. Ephraim tells us that his countenance fell for two reasons. Number one, because his offering was not accepted. Number two, because his brother's offering was accepted. What Cain really wanted was the reverse. His countenance didn't just fall because his offering wasn't accepted. No, 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 no. It fell because his brother's offering was also accepted. He would have wanted to reverse for his to be accepted and for her brother not to be accepted how come why did he have such hatred why did he have such envy of his brother where did this come from do you think our families are immune from this how do you protect your children how do you protect your brothers and sisters from this Think about how many people you know who have brothers with whom they have no relationship or sisters to whom they don't talk or uncles that have not seen in ages. Why do you think this happens? When a sin enters the family, it wrecks havoc all the way through. And unless you say to yourself, whatever happened in the past has happened in the past, by the grace of God and by His blood, it stops with me. I don't care what happens to me, but I will not let it through. Unless you do that sacrificial offering of yourself so that your children and their children be spared, whatever has happened in the past, it'll just keep on going. It'll just keep on going. So, Cain's mood, when Cain fell, his mood was despondency. What is despondency? It's depression mixed with anger. Depression mixed with anger, gets despondency. How do you know what despondency is? I'll give you an example. Um, You come home, and you've just done your hair. And you ask your brother or your husband, so how does it look? And he takes a look and says, "Uh, fine. Why, did you do something? (laughs) He's clueless. Of course, it doesn't happen to anybody, right? There's not one guy out there who's like that. They immediately notice how good your hair looks because when you've done it. And, you know, I don't speak from experience, right? So, now, there's a variety of ways you can react to this. One is to kind of feel sorry for the poor guy. Obviously, there's something he's missing, right? And you just, okay. And you just move on. Two, you can be upset. You can take it personally. He's not paying attention to me. Right? And be up, angry about it for a little while, and then you move on. Three, you clamp down, you don't talk, and then he says, "Hey, what's wrong?" And what do you say? Despondency, right there. That's what it is. Nothing. What do you mean, nothing? What did I say? Nothing. (laughs) Of course, of course, nobody here does that, right? We, We don't. We don't do that. What happened? If you put it on slow motion and walk through it slowly, I'll tell you what happened. First, first, you did your hair, and I don't. I'm just speaking on this example, but I could, you know, I'm, I can come up with a ton of examples of the guys, right? Like you know, a guy has just built this whole wall, right, and he's really proud of the ways the screws fit in. Right? And then he just says, hey, come and look, what do you think? And the answer is, huh, you sure this is the right color? Right, I can, I'm sure you can come up with your own, I don't have to. But let's walk through it slowly, because this is exactly what's going on here. First, when you did your hair, when you did this wall, what was your intention? Was it to serve the others? Did you do your hair because you wanted to serve the others, mainly to make your husband proud, let's say? Did you do the swall because you knew it might help your mother or your father or your wife? Or did you do it out of pride, out of egotism, out of vanity? Now, you might think nobody's watching. The devil is. And he sees his opening. Here's one problem we all have. There are four voices that speak in our head. Four. The voice of God, our voice, the voice of our guardian angel, and the voice of the evil one. And guess what? We're such babes in the spiritual life that we all think, except for the voice of God, it's unmistakable when it happens. It happens very rarely, by the way. But we, for the three other ones, our voice, the voice of the, our guardian angel, the voice of the evil one, we think it's us. So, you're sitting in the kitchen, you're washing dishes. And as you're washing dishes, um, you know, for instance, let's say your mom is late. She sh- she's su- so supposed to be there at 7.15 and it's already 7.20 or 7.30. She's late. Okay. You're washing dishes. And right then in your head bursts this image. You know, your mom's car is totaled. She's dead. and Okay? So what do you think? What is the immediate thing you do? You appropriate that image. You think it's yours. My. You see? You think of yourself as just being you and there's nobody who can see or feel or understand what you're thinking of in a spiritual realm. Nobody. You immediately make it yours. And he knows that. He's so good at it. He knows how gullible we are. So he just feeds us those images. That's what he does. And we help him. Because the imagination is that faculty of ours that is the most angelic. This is how the angels, good or bad, talk to us. Through the images stuffed in our imagination. So what do we do? Gullible that we are. We go watch horror movies. So we stuff our head with all these images. And of course, it doesn't affect us. So we say. Because we don't care about our soul. We think affect us means only emotion. We have no cognizance of the way it affects our soul. We just go watch a whole bunch of horror movies, stuff ourselves with these ugly images, and they sit there forever. And then he goes in and picks one of those, and then he goes like this in front of us. And he knows we're going to grab it and make it our own. Now when you're young, it doesn't matter, but when you grow a little older and you have kids, guess what happens to you? Especially women. You start to worry. And worry eats you alive. And if it's not worry, it's regrets. You'd be walking by and something jolts you, like somebody pricked you. About something you did when you were a kid, you know, you're trying to eat this piece of cake and you dropped it on your pants, and everybody laughed, and you felt silly. And then suddenly it comes back and hits you in the face, and you think you're the one bringing it. You are absolutely unaware that you're like a fortress with the door completely open, and the devil can come in and come out anytime he wishes with his inspirations, and you don't even know it. I'll give you a very simple rule for you to build upon. Here's how you can tell the difference between the voice of your garden angel and the voice of a devil. If you are in a life of grace, if you're living, if you went to confession last week, okay? The voice of your garden angel will be like a pebble thrown in the lake that hits the surface and produces no ripples. The lake remains at peace. When your garden angel plants an idea in your head, it doesn't provoke an explosion at the emotional level. It doesn't call anxiety. It doesn't rattle you. You go, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe I should do that. Okay? When the evil one speaks to you, it's somebody throwing a boulder in the lake. Huge. And you feel all rattled inside out. And the proper response is to recognize what's coming from and just let it pass. You ignore it. It's not mine. I don't care. Go away. Right, And then you say to yourself, okay, every time you're going to hit me one of those, I'm going to say Hail Mary. Go ahead. Now, now you have entered the spiritual realm. Now you're doing battle. Now you've become a Christian. That's our spiritual life. So, going back to what I said to you. You did something without examining your conscience. Why am I doing this? What's its purpose? So there's something already, there's a seed there. He comes and all he does is amplifying it. He does it right when you say to somebody, hey, what do you think? What are you expecting? You're expecting something to feed your pride and your vanity, let's say in this case. Right? You don't get it. So what happens? He immediately slaps you one of those images. You make it your own. You fall into despondency. Perfect. Now, it's a small thing. It's not important. But he knows how much we are avid of patterns. We, love, we are creatures of habit. He knows if he doesn't long enough, when something bad happens, that's exactly how we're going to react. That's why, for instance, when somebody dies, we have these amazing displays of emotion that are absolutely ridiculous. Because we are not prepared to die. We, don't, we can't face death peacefully. The death of a three-year-old, of an 18-year-old. Somehow we, have the, we must have the property of death. It always surprises us. I don't know why. Because we're not ready. Because we're not ready. So, the only way we can be ready is by making use of, these, of the sacraments, going to confession, and examining ourselves. Am I doing what is right in the eyes of God? And examination doesn't mean I'm going to spend, you know, 12 hours examining myself. It's sort of very cursory, very light. You sit there for five minutes. Holy Spirit, my garden angel, show me those things that I did today that I shouldn't have done. And you just sit there and then thoughts come to you. Oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Okay, I'll, I'll try to do better next time. That's just a conversation with a really good friend of yours who's sitting right next to you. Your guardian angel knows you inside and out because he saw you since you were born. And he's, by the way, he's a, he's a creature that has been alive for billions of years and has been a saint for billions of years and he sees the face of God in heaven and he's assigned to you to help you go to heaven. And he's the most neglected friend of yours. And those of you who've never called upon your guardian angel, it's a very simple way to start. When you want to find a parking spot, ask your guardian angel to find it for you. See what happens. See what happens. He's there to help you. So, ask Him to help you. And you start examining yourself. And as you do that, little by little, very gently, God will lead you. He will lead you where He wants you to be. And He will give you what your heart yearns for. Peace and joy. Very simple. Alright. So, unlike Cain, hopefully, when our offering is not accepted, our face will not fall down Instead, we'll humble ourselves and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. And we humble ourselves when we do that with our spouse. I'm sorry, honey, I'll try to pay attention next time about your hair. Right? And that means, okay, how often do you do your hair? And when's it going to be the next time you're going to do your hair? You need all the help you get, guys, trust me. You need all the help you get, so put it on your calendar, for goodness sake. That's, now you're showing yourself to be really serious. Well, uh, random, you do your best, right? It's random, it's random. You can't do anything about it, right? But you you, you got to have to try and do something about it, right? Maybe buy her flowers next week or something. Okay, but that, that's what I'm saying. You take practical steps to change whatever you're doing, right? And in this way, your, your faith and your life become one. You now begin to live according to what you believe. And you believe according to what you live. You're now one. You're a friend of God. So, when Cain has killed his brother, God come to him and says, What have you done? It's actually a cry of horror. What have you done? And he says, Behold, the blood of your brother cries to me from earth. Well, he doesn't mean the blood in the singular. Dama in Hebrew. The word actually is damim, the bloods. There's sort of an S there. And by this he means not just the blood of Abel, but the blood of all the descendants of Abel. And that's why there's a saying that says when you kill one man, you've just extinguished the whole world. When you kill one man, you just extinguish the whole world. And likewise, when you save one man, you just save the whole world. And then Cain answers back, why, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. So every, every criminal, every murder is a fratricide. When I kill a man, I'm killing a brother. Because we are all part of the family of God. And truly, by the covenant, I'm killing a brother. And his blood Christ to God from heaven. So in the book of Revelation, for instance, chapter 6, verse 10, we hear hear the saints in heaven, they pray the following prayer, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And by dwell upon the earth, they don't mean just us. They mean those who made earth their final dwelling. So you need to understand that charity and meekness and turning your left cheek are not a position of weakness. They're actually a position of strength because we know that in heaven justice will be rendered. So when we are charitable and meek, it is because in the final analysis we are more, in a sense, fearful of the awesome holiness of God and what He can do than we are of any evil man can do. Because the evil of man, however ugly it is, and however terrible it is, is always passing. It is here one day, and it's gone. But the God who is holy and just, is here forever. And we've won the battle. The battle is won, it's over. Christ is on the cross, and He's risen, which means He rules the world. So when I'm meek to my brother, it's because I'm concerned about him, and about what would happen to him if he doesn't straighten up. When I'm charitable to him, it's because I'm thinking about God, who is full of solicitude and love towards the soul, and want them to repent. It's a position of strength. But see, you cannot give what you don't have. Unless you're in the friendship of Jesus, and you know Him through prayer, how can you give what you don't have? It's really difficult. So you got to come to know this Lord and love Him by praying. Spend 15 minutes in prayer every day. Force yourself. Be a man. Be a woman. Be a child of God. Do it. And the reward are great. So remember, the law of mercy is a position of strength, not weakness. Now, God's punishment... Okay, I don't think I'm going to be able to go into God's punishment right now because I've exceeded my hour, so I covered half of what I wanted to cover. I don't know why. But I think I'm going to end with this. I'd like to end with this. I'd like to read you a text which sort of put this whole thing into a really powerful, powerful uh, perspective. This is a poem written by Victor Hugo, this French poet. Probably one of the greatest poets that has ever lived. And it's called... In French, the conscience. And a translation is called Cain. It is a poem about Cain. Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo, I suppose, the way you say it in English. Uh, You might know him from Les Misérables. He's the one who wrote Les Misérables. And the reason why he wrote Les Misérables was because at his time, when he was living there, Parisians decided that they wanted to get rid of the old stuff and build new stuff. So they wanted to get rid of uh, Notre-Dame and all that old stuff. So he wrote Les Misérables and and he wrote uh, um, Le Bossu de uh, Notre-Dame, Notre-Dame's Henchback, to show them how beautiful Paris is. All right, here's Cain. Then, with his children, clothed in skins of brutes, disheveled, livid, rushing through the storm, Cain fled before Jehovah. As night fell, the dark man reached a mount in a great plain, and his tired wife and his sons, out of breath, said, Let us lie down on the earth and sleep. Cain, sleeping not, dreamt at the mounted foot. Raising his head in that funereal heaven, he saw an eye, a great eye in the night, open and staring at him in the gloom. I am too near, he said, and tremblingly woke up. His sleeping sons again and his tired wife, and fled through space and darkness. Thirty days he went, and thirty nights. Nor looked behind, pale, silent, watchful, shaking at each sound. No rest, no sleep, till he attained the strand, where the sea washes that which since was Ashur. Here pause, he said, for this place is secure. Here may we rest, for this is the world's end. And as he sat down, when low in the sad sky the self-same eye on the horizon's verge, and the wretched shook, as in agua fit. Hide me, he cried, and all his watchful sons, their finger on their lip, stared at, that, at their sire. Cain said to Jabal, father of them that dwelt in tents, spread here the curtain of thy tent, and then spread wide the floating canvas roof, and made it fast and fixed it down with lead. You see not now, said Zilah. then, fair child, the daughter of his eldest, sweet as day. But Cain replied, That eye, I see it still. And Jubal cried, The father of all those that handle harp and organ, I will bid the sanctuary. And he made a wall of bronze, and set his sire behind it. But Cain moaned, That eyes glaring at me ever. Enoch cried, Then must we make a circle vast of towers, so terrible that nothing dare draw near. Build we a city with a citadel, Build we a city high and close it fast. Then to cain instructor of all them that work in brass and iron, build a tower, enormous superhuman. While he wrought his fiery brothers from the plain around, hunted the sons of Enoch and of Seth. They plucked the eyes out of whoever passed and hurled at even arrows to the stars. They set strong granite for the canvas wall and every block was clamped with iron chains. It seemed the city made for hell. Its towers, with their huge masses, made night in the land. The walls were thick as mountains. On the door they graved, let not God enter here. This done, and having finished the cement and build in a stone tower, they set him in the midst. To him, still dark and haggard, O my sire, is the eye gone, quoth Zila tremblingly. But Cain replied, Nay, it is even there. Then added, I will live. I will live beneath the earth as a lone man within his sepulchre. I will see nothing. Will be seen of none. They dig the trench, and Cain said, "Tis now." As he went down alone into the vault, but when he sat, so ghostlike in his chair, and they had closed the dungeon over his head, the eye was in the tomb, and fixed on Cain. That's. It. This is our conscience. It will nag you and nag you and nag you no matter where you go until you make right with God. I hope that through these explanations you're starting to see that this text isn't just about something that happened long past. It is ever alive today in our life. And it shows us how God has plans for us and how He intends for our families to live. And our choices are simple. Either we'll be like the family of Adam and Eve with all this death and destruction, and you can see it all around you. Or, what is the other choice? The Holy Family. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Those are the choices. And it really depends on us. God gave us everything we need to make this choice. So let's choose wisely. Let's finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll have some time for questions. Bobby. It's very simple. So the question is, St. Paul seems to indicate that we will not be punished for the sins of our forefathers. And actually, the Lord himself also speaks the same way in different places in Scripture. And yet here, or in Exodus actually, not in Genesis, God seems to indicate that we will visit the iniquity of these fathers as I quoted to you upon the children to the fourth generation. So how could it be? Which one is it? Well, as usual, it's both, right? In the case of someone who is living a life of grace, he's in friendship with God. What does it mean to live a life of grace? It means that you have changed your family. You no longer are the child of your parents. You've become the child of Christ. You are now a son and a daughter of God. Your family has changed. So whatever issues, problems were in your family before, they no longer follow you. So that's number one. Number two you now have the power through the blood of Christ by His death on the cross that covers all of time to be able to reach in the past and pray for the purification of your family. So you have both powers. Now, if you're not living a life of grace, then what happens is that the sins of the parents are visited upon the children down to the fourth generation. Okay? That, why is that? Because God wants to show us how we treat Him. You see? Why does he do it with our kids? Because kids are typically the people that we love most. And when he shows us in our kids what's going on, we kind of understand how we treat him. Where our kids are, dis- where our children are disrespectful to us, we realize how disrespectful we are to God. So he hopes through it all to make us realize what we're doing, all right? And also to make us realize that without him, we just can't do it. It's impossible. And we'll see it through Genesis. Yes. Good question. Is this the first offering ever or did Adam and Eve offer something before? We don't know. But I don't think there's anything that would lead us to believe that this was the first offering ever. It is probably maybe the first offering for them, but it doesn't necessarily imply that it was the first offering ever. And really, it doesn't it's not that important. But what is really important is the behavior of Cain and Abel towards their offering. Yeah? Yes, so how, you know, what about the wives? They got wives. And my, my take is that there was another text that this was written against. So, for instance, in the Jewish tradition, the notion is that Adam had, and Eve had 32 sets of twins, boys and girls, boys and girls, and they married each other. You need to realize that the laws against incest did not come until, until Deuteronomy. Before that, there was no law against incest. Right? So, presumably, this type of marriage happened uh, before, and this is how population grew. But again, this is non-scriptural. It's not part of the holy tradition of the church. It is just some of the additional stories around it that try to fill the gap. And that's why I don't pay enough attention to it, because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Because the focus here, as you can see, is not about history. And it's not there to satisfy curiosity. It's really there to make us attentive to something that impacts our lives today. Yes, another good point. We're, 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 the idea is that we are all part of the human family. Right? We all go back to Adam and Eve. So we are, in a sense, brothers and sisters. Right? We are related. But we are even more related when we are baptized. Because then the relationship is a much higher order. It's a spiritual one. Right? Yes? What is the right question? Very good question. Um, so the, fundamentally, you don't, you don't want to receive the Eucharist, when you're in a state of a sin. And uh, the reason is, as St. Paul says, you receive a judgment upon yourself. Because you've already broken the covenant, now you're making a mockery of it. Right? Talk about getting yourself in trouble. But, what about venial sins? Well, here's the deal. When you enter the church, and you sign yourself with that holy water, if when you do that, you think about your venial sins, they are forgiven. That holy water will forgive your venial sins. When you're walking up the aisle to receive the Eucharist, and you ask God to forgive you your, your sins, and actually it's part of the liturgy, so if in the Latin rite, the Confiteor is really at the beginning, in the Maronite rite, it's right before we receive communion, right? In both instances, your venial sins are forgiven by the power of the sacrament, right? Yeah, so you get it both ways. He's in to clean, Right? And then you do your part, right? That, that, I mean, why do, we have, why do we have the Eucharist at the end of the Mass? The whole Mass is what? It's, a, it's there to praise God, to prepare our souls, to, think, you know, to, to be contrite, to ask His forgiveness, to think about others, to pray together, and we come to the Holy Meal. It's like, you know, the party before the, the dinner, right? The hors d'oeuvres first, and then you go and have dinner. That's exactly what's going on. Yeah? Okay. Yes? And the person of Christ. So who is effecting what is mass? Mass is the mechanism that Jesus established to allow people who live in time to be united to the one and only sacrifice that He effects in heaven. That's what mass is. So effectively we're like people who are who climbed in a shuttle to go to where the dinner is. Right? What control do we have? We've been invited. No, there is no ma- No, none of The reason why they bow down is because they're bowing down before the sacrifice of Christ, bowing down before Jesus, not before the priest. And that's a sacrament established by Christ, not by the priest. Right? And it's operere operandis, meaning that it operates in, in and of itself. Whether the priest believes or not makes no difference. Why? Because it's the power of Christ. Actually, you have even less power there than anywhere else. Yes? Yeah, actually, it's also in Scripture. Yeah. God does. It's in the Psalms. God does want to do the will of those who love him. God, Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's very different from what happens at the altar. It, is, it has nothing to do with the intention of the man. It has everything to do with what Jesus established in his own blood. And he, the priest has only to say the words and have the proper matter, so the proper form and matter, and it takes place. But it's not through the power of the priest. Yes. Okay, here's the bottom line, and this is what I stand to. Because this is what the church stands to. The book of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus. Five books are have been taught by Moses, but they may not have been penned down by him alone, because one of the books speaks of his death. Right? So it is definitely Moses as the author, but when it was spent down in Babylon, right? there was a reason why, there was a contemporary reason why they took this whole story and wrote it down. Have they written everything Moses said? Written only part of it? Have they commented on it? Probably. So, Moses as the initial author, additional commentary when it happened, I think would be the most plausible answer. Yes. Well, see, there are four senses of scripture, right? The literal, the allegorical, the anagogical, and the moral. But in a literal sense, these are real historical events that took place. Right? Adam and Eve are a historical event that took place. The flood is a real flood. Right? It's not something that we just. Uh... Oh no no no! It's not literalist. When he takes the fruit, see, there's a difference between literalist meaning. So, for instance, when Jesus says, "If you know your hand causes you to sin, cut it," does he really mean that? Take a you know chop it up? No, he doesn't. But there's a literal meaning, which is. You must make violence against sin. You really have to try hard. It's not easy. Likewise here, there is a fruit of a tree. So there is something that gives life. What is it we don't know? But it's not the apple. Okay. So again, we have to read it in context. Just as we today, if you tell me, give me a break, I'm not going to go buy you one. You see? But there is something that you're telling me and it has to be understood in context, like was with Scripture. Okay? Yes? Um, there are many speculations where the garden was physically located, and frankly, it doesn't matter because it's not there anymore. So, that's it. I mean, this is a good question because we all have to ask ourselves this when we are confronted with a question in our minds, right? What is the outcome? What's the purpose of the question? Why am I asking it? Does it get me closer to God? Is it going to help me become holier? If not, ignore it. Not worth it. Right? So likewise, with books you're reading, I mean, if you're reading a book, that's not going to make you holy while you're reading it. If you're watching TV for something that doesn't make you holy, why are you watching, everything follows. Right? And by the way, I just want to let you know, curiosity, curiosity is not a virtue. Curiosity is a sin. It's a vice. Curiosity is a vice. Always a vice. The purpose of curiosity is to seek knowledge for the purpose of knowledge. Okay? Wisdom is to seek knowledge for the purpose of truth. There's a complete difference between the two. I'll give you an example. You hear somebody over the phone saying, "Oh, he divorced." Who? Who? 5 minutes ago you were living just fine without knowing who. <laughs> and now you're itching all over. That's a vice. What Is it going to change anything in your life right now? No. Why do you ask? Curiosity is a vice, never a virtue. All right? Yes. Okay. So the question is, how did everybody come from Adam and Eve? What you need to do is back off, backtrack, pull back, and ask them, why do you ask this question? Some people think that the only way they will believe is if they find a complete harmony between Scripture and science. So science is their gospel. Now, if I can get scripture to harmonize with science, I'll believe. Otherwise, it's ridiculous. I'm not. So that's the real issue that you want to go after. And ask the question, why is that? Why do you think so? And then, one way to deal with it is to show people how science is utterly untrustworthy. In the 19th century, scientists firmly believed that the universe was eternal. In the 16th century, they believed the earth was flat. Scientists did. Scientists did. Why do we trust science so much? And that's where you bring the, the, the real subject is there. So instead of getting yourself into this sort of a quagmire of let me explain to you how everybody comes from Adam and Eve, which you really cannot explain fundamentally, you have to back up and say, okay, why do you ask this question? And then you re steer them the, the right way. Right? Yes. So that, the, the demons are not locked in hell. If they were, right? We would not be talking about Saint Peter. Will not say, "Watch for the," you know, the second letter of Saint Peter. First letter, of, sorry, first letter of Saint Peter, chapter five. The devil is like a lion roaring, seeking whom he may devour. That indicates he's right here, right? He has that freedom until the end of the ages, when his freedom would be completely shut off once and for all. The difference is when Christ came, what he broke what he took away from evil from from uh, from uh, Satan is the ownership that Satan had over us he owned us with the fall of adam and eve and Christ took that away from him and gave us the tools the powers we need to be able to fight him that's what he doesn't have anymore so we say the name of Jesus and he runs away before Jesus there was no name he would run away from okay why did he not constrain him to hell because even the demons will serve the glory of God. It is for the greater glory of God. That's why. Yes. So the question is, what happens when someone is in a life of sin? How does he perceive the voices of the garden angel and of the devil? They're exact opposite. So the voice of his garden angel will be like a boulder, causing a huge splash. And the voice of the devil will cause no ripple. See, what the devil wants from people who are in a state of sin, you know what what he wants? He wants them not to believe that he exists. That's what he wants. That's all he wants. You understand, the devil is not trying to get them to adore him. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to get them to hell. So if they don't believe he exists, why should they be afraid? Leave them exactly where they are. Don't disturb them. Don't disturb the frog. The water is boiling. So you're absolutely correct. Yes. Indeed, there is power in the church to lock a demon in hell. There is. But the general tendency is that when through this, the, 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 the uh, resurrection of Christ, he did not consign them to hell. Right? Yeah, but indeed you can. Yeah. But that's a, I didn't want to get into this. My point was that you got to understand there are really three voices that speak to you. Your own, the voice of your garden angel. You need to get to know him. And the best way you get to know him is to pray and start asking him questions. Help me with this. And start with very simple things, mundane things. Things you can completely relate to. Right? When you're driving, don't drive without him. Okay? Help, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I'm not paying attention and there's someone screaming in my head. And I just look up and I hit the brakes. I'm about to just slam it. I I cannot tell you the number of times that this happened to me. So don't go, don't leave. You know, when they say the credit card? Well, you got an angel. Don't leave home without him. Okay? Yes. Yeah. All right. You're not going to like my answer right now. But I'm not here to tell you stuff you're going to like because you can get that on the radio anywhere you want. If you're not intent on being married, don't date. You're wasting your time, and even worse, you're putting yourself in danger and someone else's. Don't. The purpose of dating is to find out, actually, I'd rather call it, but it's true name, not dating. Right? Courting. The purpose of courting is to find out if you and her are made for one another, and if God is calling you, God is calling the two of you to be united in marriage. Okay? Other than that, don't date. It's a waste of time, and it gets you in In so many complicated situations. Right? Well, courting is for the purpose of getting married. Right. So, oh, that's fine. That's the whole purpose. Right? Now, let me tell you you a couple of things. When you court, right? Number one, don't court the two together alone. Have somebody with you. Why? See, again, you're not just you and her. There's a whole bunch of others who are involved in this. So, you want to protect yourself. So, you court, for instance, you make sure it's during the day. You don't get yourself in trouble. Number two, when you court, you want to, you want to understand if you and her are actually compatible on four levels. Physical, that's the easy one. That's the one that gets in the way, usually. So, you, you, you just want to keep this aside. You get that one. It's easy. Emotional. Right? Does she make you feel comfortable? Once you leave this f- physical side of Do you feel comfortable being around her? Does she feel comfortable being around you? You're going to find that out. Rational. Can you guys talk? Really talk. Not just, hi, how are you? But just have real conversations over, you know, what do you want to do, what she wants to do, future, life, children, etc. And then spiritual. All the four dimensions of dating. So dating, most of the time, is also a very intellectual process. It's like the right dating, you, you do the rational stuff, So you can get the romantic stuff after. Most people sort of flip it around. They do the romantic stuff first, and then they go, what happened? (laughs) Hey, let me just think about that. Right? Other way around. Okay? So, you you really want to date, keeping in mind that God is going to be your father-in-law. And you're dating his daughter. And he's got a big gun. If you approached it this way, and if she approaches it the same, you'd be a lot more careful and considerate. Not that, I'm not saying you're not, but I'm talking in general. right? Typically, the way we do it is sort of either rush, 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 or we just think about one thing and then we mess it all up. Right? So, if you're dating, pray. Pray even more. And you have to make sure. To, you need to let go. Mary, if she's for me, give her to me. If she's not, take her away. You give her to Mary. Give her to Mary. See, she'll give it back to you. She, she will give her back to you. That's the right way of dating. You involve your mother because she has your interest at heart. And likewise, she does the same. So dating has to be couched in prayer. And then everything happens beautifully. Whether you end up together or you don't. There's no regret. There's no these huge being torn apart in four different ways. So, that's what I would say. Okay? Yes. When you say you go against your parents, are you going against the precepts of the church? Are they telling you something that the church teaches and you're saying no? If that's what you're doing, you're in error. Okay? If it is not a question of theology and a question of morality, but let's say you end up dating a black guy. Right? And your parents can't just stand him. There's no absolutely no problem for you to consider thoughtfully and prayerfully what they're telling you and why. But if it doesn't make sense, if it's only based on prejudice, which is not the law of God, it's not the law of charity, you're perfectly in your right to ignore it, and you should. You need to be. You need to exercise care, and that means you do not make the decision on your own. So you listen to what they say, you keep the conversation rational as much as you can. You take notes. And go talk to someone completely, nothing to do with this whole story. Don't know you, don't know them. Present it, present the facts, and seek counsel from one person, a second person, a third person. And do a novena. Right? Call upon God. Show me the way. Mary, show me. You either open that door or you close it. Right? And then things will follow. St. Charbon went against the counsel of his mother. He went to the monastery, and she wanted him married. And when she came... She knocked at the door and he said, no, I'm, I'm here. He said, why, why can't you let me see my, your face in heaven, Mother? He didn't see her face. So, act prudently. Listen to them with respect. Take everything they tell you. Make sure you have not missed something they see that you don't. Then go and talk to others as well who have experience, who are wise, who are men and women of God that you know, who know you since you were little, hopefully, talk to them, see what they say. And then pray. And then once you find that point of peace in your heart and strength that comes with it, you know God is with you. Go. Cool. Make sense? Okay. All right. Thank you. Yes. So here's a very good uh, re- advice. Novena to your garden angel. Pray to your garden angel about this business of dating. Okay? You basically have access to someone who's been alive for billions of years and whose intelligence is so superior to ours we cannot even understand it. And he has your interest, your best interest at heart. And when you pray, you know what you're doing? You're really truly showing yourself to be a wise man because you're not saying to God, my will first. Once you let go of something you really want... You're saying to God, you are first. If you find yourself clinging to something, no matter what it is, whether it's you know, a pretty girl or ice cream, if you're clinging to it, you're in trouble. Make sense? Okay. Very good. God bless you. See you next week.